the identity shift is the is the hugest thing this kind of massive shift in your identity um and the realization that we are what we mean to other people um i never really kind of stopped to think about that before i had children Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast uh, with me, Claire Pay. This is a podcast that talks about what matters to mothers and why mothers matter. And today I'm talking with uh, Sarah Kaleno about poetry. She is a poet and she's written a number of poems about being a mother. And so we're going to discuss a whole range of topics, including breastfeeding, um, grandparents' uh, relationships between husband and wife. So it's quite a wide-ranging discussion and framed in the context of her poems. Um, She reads all the poems that we're going to discuss. She's read out for us and I've put them at the end of the podcast to make it easy for you to go to so you can just flip to the end of the podcast and hear her um, reading her poems then. Uh, We had a few problems. I was recording on Squadcast but um, my bandwidth was used up by various children having a break and therefore going on their tablets and my husband working from home so we had to swap to Zoom. So sorry about there's a there's a change in that in the middle of the recording. Um, Also uh, Sarah talks about the mother baby dyad and if you're not familiar with that phrase I'd heard about it, but I wasn't quite sure what it meant. Um, It's basically a dyad is something which has two parts to it. So uh, um, something that consists of two parts is the definition. And mother-baby dyad seems to be referred to mainly in breastfeeding. I could be wrong with that. But um, the, the very close relationship between the two. Um, I'd also like to say hello to people who are listening all over the world, which is wonderful to find out about. Um, hello to the person listening in Barbados, um, two people in Oman, uh, Zimbabwe and other parts of the world. So hello to you. So I hope you in- enjoy the podcast. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sparing time out of this really busy time um, with lockdown and everything to talk to me about your poetry. And it's been a, a real joy to read your poems. And uh, it's brought up quite a lot of deep emotions in me and it, it's sort of connected to something very um, visceral. So uh, I'm really looking, it's a real honour to be able to talk to you actually about these these poems and um, uh, think about the themes and uh, how you came to write them. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm just so pleased that you like my poems. Thank you for taking the time to read them as well. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start with, we're going to go through some of the different poems that you've written and I've chosen them either because they um, they have certain phrases that really appeal to me or I think it's a concept that is is really interesting to talk about and actually they're all these poems are all on the theme of motherhood and sort of relationships between adults and children Um, but I'd actually like to start with your purgatory poem which is about um, well can you tell us you tell us what it's about Um, Well, I actually wrote it initially in a response to a prompt, which was to write about the theme of the supernatural. 
Um, and at the time, I was waiting for some results for like, you know, different kind of physical symptoms of illness to come through. And each symptom seemed like kind of a sign from the Grim Reaper that something was really amiss. And um, that's that's kind of the the inspiration from the poem. Um, it goes through kind of several symptoms like, um, you know, fatigue, hair loss. This kind of it, all of these things could be something and they could be nothing. Um, lucky for me, it didn't turn out to be serious at all. It was only anemia, so I just took some iron tablets and I was fine. But um, it, the poem is really about the waiting for these results and um, sort of realizing, especially in the role of a, a parent, a mother, you're, you're too busy to pay attention to these things that might be kind of going wrong in the background. You're so busy, busy spinning plates and uh, making sure everything's perfect for everyone else around you, that, that um, if, if one little thing stops working, um, you, it just dawned on me quite quickly, everything is kind of a stack of cards and it could come down any minute if I get ill. Um, so, so that's really what the poem was about. Well, yes, and you you capture it really well uh, that uh, when you say um, rest the elusive pot of gold of luxurious frivolity and the undeserved in, indulgence of the ne- neglectful, <laughs> that really spoke to me. You know, it's a sort of it's the pot of gold. You think, I, you know, in the morning, you think maybe I'll finish enough today to have a to not go to bed really late mm. or. You know, is that the way you you feel about things? That it's a it's a luxury and it's not sort of something that you have time for in the day. Well, I I I think I probably speak for a lot of mothers and parents that if you took time to sleep in or something that you desperately need, even physically to do, or you know, take a bath that's five minutes longer than it than is acceptable for everyone else in the household. It's, it feels like a kind of a deeply selfish act that is detrimental to everyone around you. And actually, it's, when, you, when you look at these tiny things that you need to do to kind of just be OK, um, it's quite a sad state of affairs, really. Um, <laughs> so I think that's where it came from. <laughs> I know. I think uh, the, the, there's the difference between sort of knowing what you should be doing and looking after yourself and taking time and so on and just the urgency of the day you know when you get up it's like yeah. someone starts a fires a starting gun yeah. and it's you know you have to be on it yeah. to get to the end of the day <laughs> yeah. and I think it, it kind of starts with them with when they're very small and you know they're still not sleeping through the night and you're sort of fired through a cannon back into your work life so you're kind of working double shifts. You're working all night, doing night feeds, and then you're working all day outside the house too. And it's just relentless. Um, so I, I don't think there's any time to ever recover from that. You know, it goes from the night feeds to all the after-school activities that you have to rush around and do until nine o'clock at night. Um, so, yeah, it's it just never really let up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you you have the irony as well that um, 
that you're really busy you know you mentioned here the after school swimming classes packed snacks warmed milk it's I love the way you use the sort of past tense because it's the idea that you've achieved it's like you're ticking mm. things off you know I've done this I've done the milk I've done the snacks mm. we've done the the homework and you know it's going to start again the next day but um and so that all brings home to you how important your role is but then if you have a, a unexplained symptom you think gosh if you take me out of the equation mm. what's going to what's going to ha- who's going to do all of this what's yeah. going to happen yeah and I, I actually had covid recently and i just oh, could, right. i couldn't do these things at all i mean luckily everyone's in isolation so you don't have to take them here there and there and it was lockdown so the pressure was off but um you know i was really thankful that the rest of the world had kind of stopped the same time i did <laughs> because it would <laughs> you know at least i didn't have to keep up with these things um, so and yeah. how, how did you manage? What happened? Um, well, we were we were all in and we were isolating. Um, so my husband was working from home and at home as well. So because we were all stuck in, it wasn't a case of having to be in two places at once, which is so often the case um, for a parent. You know, you have to split yourself four or five ways usually. So because mm. we didn't have to do that, it was kind of manageable. Yes. Gosh. Well, that, and I like your phrase here. Um, when a dizzy spell omen was dismissed, explained away by another long day, it's, uh, again, it, you, you capture the idea that you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't dismiss it, <laughs> that, that you've got enough reasons that you, it would just be another one of those things. You know, you have a dizzy spell, you've had a long day. But um, the, the fact you're having these long days means that you have to be in tip top condition to, to do the things you need to be doing. Sorry about that slight interruption as we swap to Zoom. <laughs> the joys of lockdown and everyone being at home and using the computers. Um, we got there eventually. We've got there, yes. <laughs> so we, I'd really like to, uh, we've just talked about purgatory and sort of throwing ourselves into the middle of um, motherhood. But with losing touch, this is really sort of looking back in, at the past, isn't it, and what our lives were and what they are now. Could you say a bit about what what, uh, brought you to write that particular uh, Um, poem? Yes, yes. So so Losing Touch, um, originally I wrote it as sort of a a sonnet to these friendships that have endured through, you know, young adulthood and kind of through parenthood as well. Um, And then at the same time, I was teaching a lot of E.E. Cummings and I thought, actually, it might be better as a broken sonnet because... Um, I wouldn't say these relationships are broken, but there's there's definitely a shift. You know, there's there's certainly less time and more distance between um, between the friends I was writing about, um, and particularly um, male friends. So most of my friends when I was young uh, and when I was a student and I had a shared house, you know, I lived with a, a group of boys, and um, really my closest friends were, were male. And uh, the the divide when when parenthood came, the divide between um, me and my my group was was huge, and they kind of continued to be able to knock around together in much the same fashion, and uh, and I didn't anymore. So yeah. I think I felt it much more than they did. Um, so that's really what the poem was about. Um, and I suppose it's an identity poem as well. Um, this huge 
change in identity which kind of comes all of a sudden when you when suddenly you look very different when you're pregnant and you're you know physically able to get around and have the the endurance for a, for a night out or whatever that you might have had before um you know that that with that kind of physical shift comes a big change in identity as well um which you know um changes your relationships changes your friendships Yes, and it's it's interesting you start the poem with um, the word but too old and it's not even a capital. Is that what, what are you doing with that? Um, so it really, I guess it's the, the idea that this sort of catches you unawares, you know, uh, all of a sudden it creeps up on you that you're, you're not going to make old friends like that again. You know, old friends, you make, you make old friendships when you're young and... Uh, I suppose you're not you're not going to have those kind of friendships that that started with these carefree hedonistic days where you just used to tear around doing whatever you wanted. Yes. <laughs> um, you you won't have those memories with friends that you make now because you would have made those friends in a very different time uh, of life. So um, yeah, so it was the it was the idea that this suddenly dawns on you that. That those kinds of friends are very special. Those formative friendships. It, it is an ode to those kinds of formative friendships from youth, from a young adulthood, um, and and also I suppose it's celebrating social media that it you don't have to lose contact with them. There is a distance there. There's probably a screen between you, but um, you know, especially probably in terms of university people are from different cities they're scattered all around the country um when they settle down with their children and uh, thanks to social media you don't have to f- forget about people you can still keep track of them and their families and send your well wishes and see their children growing up even if you can't ever make it from london to edinburgh or whatever it is that's between you yeah um, so so it's it, in one way, it's it's sad. It's kind of a grieving poem. And in another way, it's uh, thankful that those relationships existed, those formative relationships and those happy memories. Yes, well, I really like your last, um, well, quite a few of the last lines where you talk about um, uh, love's de- deep implant in formative clay fire forged by all night routines. Uh, that's just that's a lovely um, vignette of being a being a mother and how those early days where you're up for so many hours of the day and night are uh, yeah. really they form this imprint of love in, on you and uh, on your child and and that's such a strong bond that in some ways your friendships are are different um because they're not on the same depth of your your parental love yes yeah that's yeah there's there's definitely a few ways to read that line that that's probably um the way that I wrote it when I first wrote it but when I've read it again I've kind of seen that it could also be that those those friendships that you had in your youth are also very formative and um you know they they fire your clay if you like they they mold you into who you are before you become a parent um and I suppose all night routines, you know, that could also refer to kind of, you know, going out dancing all night or, you know, yes. holidays or, you know, this 24-7 existence you have with your friends when you're young as well, that you're constantly in each other's 
apartments and in each other's pockets and you know student life even you you go shopping to even go to the supermarket together everything you do together with your friends when you're young um so I suppose it could refer to that relationship too but I wanted it to be both but yes definitely the the power of these all-night feeds kind of don't leave room for much else and and rightly so you know that that's the that's the most important thing yeah, that's a, it's a really good point, actually, that when you've got friends, when you're making friends when you're younger, you've got so much more time to spend together. Um, you, you do have just the wealth of time and experiences in your very formative years, your own formative years, uh, which are um, which are significant. And you sort of rely on those as, as you get older, because, as you say in this poem, that you're too old to make old friends. So you're relying on the, the old friends you've got from that point of view. Yes, yeah. And I suppose even if they're not there nearby to rely on in the way that, uh, you know, neighbours or family might be, um, they, they still formed you, they still have made you who you are and made you um, sort of strong enough to deal with the next phase, even if they're not physically with you. Yes, but I also think you, um, thinking about friendships, that actually the friends you make with your NCT group or your, you know, when you have your children, that they're very strong as well in in many ways because you you go through such a visceral time of your life yeah. uh, with them that that uh, it, they almost become old friends immediately. Yeah, I've, I've written a few poems about kind of school gate mates as well, um, and you know, kind of equally appreciative of of that phase of friendships as well. Um, yeah, so I suppose it's it's not really true to say you're not going to make old friends again. They're just from a different phase, the next phase. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, they, yeah. you don't have the time because as you get older, you you know the number of years you're going to know people for are <laughs> is limited. <laughs> so yeah, you, yeah. And it's a really it's really interesting thing about the sort of social media that you talk about um, uh, framed in social media memory. That actually my friendships uh, were my my pre children friendships. Uh, aren't captured in social media because I look back and actually I joined Facebook in 2007 which was the year after my daughter was born so I have no no social media from before I had children I'm only a social media parent yes yeah I suppose I am as well I think I only joined in 2006 and my daughter was born in 2009 so I only had about three years of it but uh, when it when it pops up on memories or when, you know, I, I see a friend's child who's suddenly a teenager and it's kind of slipped me by. I'm, I'm really thankful for uh, for for Facebook and the other platforms um, because it goes so quickly. And it, it, it's like it's quite a nice ticking reminder to to send that birthday message or whatever it is, um, you know, before before everything's forgotten. So. Yes, I'm a I'm a big fan actually of Facebook uh, with my friends. I really like to see my friends' posts, and I really like to see photos of their children. Um, and uh, I I appreciate it and I value it because I'm not I'm not on it very much. So I think it does have a really a, a really good way of sort of maintaining a sort of spider's web of <laughs> of connections where you wouldn't have time to connect with everyone in a sort of deep and meaningful way. But it's nice to know. It gives you it gives you some continuity with the past. Yes, yes, definitely. And um, you know, some of these relationships do carry through. You know, um, 
there, a lot of the friends I did used to go to Glastonbury with and things like that, we've all moved uh, when we started having children, we all moved to the same location and our kids are at primary school together and things like that. And we've we've managed, you know, to go on a camping trip. Or to, it's not the same, but but we have managed it with a few groups of people. It's just um, you can't keep in touch with everybody. You can't keep everyone in your life. <laughs> so I, I guess that's what the poem's really about. Yes, I'm lucky actually that two of my best friends both had children around the same age, two of my prior friends, and then my other friends generally seem to be parents of my children's friends who I like. So so some have been chosen for me, and some some I chose myself, and some of my friends don't have children or their children are a totally different age. So it's uh, it's easier in a way when they are similar ages because you you move on through life together. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And helping each other out also, you know, there's so much to help out with at that phase that, you know, that that makes your relationship stronger as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, I thought it was a lovely poem and it just makes you think, it looks, you look to the past and the person you were and then um, the person you are now <laughs> and, uh, and the people you've sort of taken with you along the way, but how you've changed as well. And they've, they've changed, things are different, but you've still got that, that old friendship that keeps you going. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, another one I really like is called, it's the burnout one. Um, okay. And you just, uh, I mean, the way you've written it, it's quite, it seems quite a speedy poem in itself. I don't know if that's what you you had in mind, the idea of, uh, you say it's a, a meteor down hurtling towards a goal or target. We can't tell which is the sense. And then it ends with um, until momentum's lost. <laughs> and it's a, the sense of, you know, starting off the day or whatever with a goal and a plan in mind and then things fall apart. Is that, is that what you had in mind or what would you say was in your mind? Um, well, I actually, I wrote it um, after one of my friends at work, some teacher and teachers are, you know, notorious for having these burnouts. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and she had quite a serious burnout. Um, she ended up kind of being off work for about a month and mm. um I, when she came back, I asked her, you know, what, 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 what is it like to have a burnout? What actually happens to you? And she said, it's, um, it's like uh, your mind just turning to mush, um, not being able to kind of hold on to a thought or, you know, you start, start to say a sentence and you can't remember what you were saying by the time you get to the end of it. It's, um, you know, almost like a, an overload, uh, like like when your computer overloads and just freezes that that's what she said mm. it felt like um so that's that's why I wrote it um and I wrote I wrote it before lockdown but I sort of realized how close so many of us were to this um with the stillness of the first lockdown um because you're so busy, you don't you don't actually realise it might be creeping up on you. I mean, my friend really didn't have any idea until one week she just couldn't couldn't even speak properly. Mm. Um, so so really, that's what it's about. Um, and I, yeah, I, I did want it to be quite fast paced in in the first half, and then suddenly this uh, floating sensation of everything stopping um, and, and losing its momentum. Yes. Um, so yeah, that that's that's really was was the effect I was trying to trying to get with it. 
Yeah, well, no, you you succeed in that. And the, the idea that it just ends with the one word of inertia. I mean, I, it's about, you know, the serious point of your friend burning out. But it, um, for me, it sort of summarises this sense that I sometimes get of, you know, setting off at full speed. And then you you have so many things coming at you that you don't quite know. It's when you say the chunks of eye uh, fly in a tail of sky behind, you know, that the bits of you, that the, the that you were planning to things you were planning to get on with sort of fall apart and something comes yeah. up and in the end you think you have reached a stage of inertia where you think you know I'm not leaving anything here because every time I try and do something something else comes up and uh, you know gets in the way like it's just silly things you know like you try and do the washing up and then your child needs help with something and then something else falls apart and someone phones and it, uh, you you sort of lose the sense of um forward move, movement that you had earlier on in the day and end up in a sense of inertia where you think oh well there's always tomorrow I'll try again. Oh, yeah I mean this is definitely a recurring theme that I write about so much is this mental load that's just overwhelming sometimes and I, I suppose this poem fits right in with that along with purgatory and and lots of my others that that there is a phenomenon of the of the mental load and part of it is you start off one task and then you're distracted by several others before you can get to it um and and this poem particularly is is literally about running out of steam just going full pelt and then and suddenly there's nothing else left, <laughs> left <Yes. can> you? <laughs> um so so yeah I mean it it, it is definitely um I suppose it's it, it's definitely a general poem. It could apply to lots of things, but specifically, I, I had I had my friend in mind who was missing from from work for such a long time, and um, it, it was really illuminating speaking to her when she came back because I had I had no idea what what actually happens to people that do burn out. Yes, yeah. Did she recover fully? Uh, yes, yes, she did. Um, I, th- I think she just kind of decided to go part time and. And take things a bit more easily and uh, you know maybe that's a lesson for all of us I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's probably a, a nice time to actually ask you how you got into writing poetry was there a, a moment that propels you or did you just think about it over time and um, well well I always wrote uh, poetry um I I forgot that I wrote poetry though to be <laughs> honest um my, my mum actually reminded me I went back to visit her in London and she kind of rummaged she said I'm so glad you're doing this again she rummaged through a drawer that was full of all sorts of nonsense you know my, my brother's milk teeth and he's nearly 40 now um <laughs> and she pulled out this poem that I'd written about um going going out age 17 and kind of living it up age 17 um and she she said oh I'm so glad you're doing this again and uh I I actually used this poem I was going to a poetry slam that night at the poetry cafe in Covent Garden and I thought oh I'll just rework it a bit and use it and I came second in that slam so you know I thought a 17 year old poem can't be any good (laughs) but it must (laughs) have It, worked, it must have been okay. It for Adele, didn't it? Because she brought she she readed a song that she'd written when she was sort of 16, 17. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, it's it might not be great at that age, but at least it's honest. So uh yeah, so I so I've always written, but I never really did anything with it. Um I sort of wrote through kind of 
bits and pieces of postnatal. It kind of saw me through, but I never sent it off for publishing. And then um, probably about 2018, I, I started sending things off to be published and I went to one or two spoken word nights. And, um, you know, since then, I've, I've had lots and lots of poems published now and a few short stories and some audio dramas as well. Mm. Um, so that's only really happened in the last couple of years. So I've always written, but it's only kind of been out there for two years, maybe. Yes. And did you, you say you wrote a few things postnatally. Did you have a, a hiatus when you were living your life and then being a mother, did that propel any sort of extra poetry out of you as such? Um, yes. I mean, quite. Uh, well, I, I think I probably had a touch of postnatal depression with my second one. So that was, um, you know, unbelievably quite a good source of inspiration. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I was writing because it just it was kind of uh, therapeutic, but um, it felt like talking to a friend, really getting everything down on paper. But but it, a lot of material came out of that time as well so um do, yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you think there's anything um on your reflections anything about being a mother as such that lends itself to poetry um well I think uh, the, the identity shift is the is the hugest thing this kind of massive shift in your identity um and the realization that we are what we mean to other people um I never really kind of stopped to think about that before I had children mm. um and and it's such a steep learning curve and and um you know even even the brain surgeons will tell you the amount of synapses that are, that are formed the neural pathways that are formed through pregnancy and and for the next few years after that they're, they're all new and it's I almost think of it like a, a computer that's receiving a new download you know mm. it's the same computer but it's it's completely different after the download the, the features <laughs> completely change the functionality of this computer and um that's I, I could I could honestly physically feel these downloads happening both times um that I was pregnant and, and had had children so um I suppose if you're creating anything it's really hard not to not to bring an enormous shift like that into your work um it's everything changes so that's that's what you end up writing about do you write when you write um poems does it help you process your thoughts or does it give you more work as such like that can you get your your thoughts out uh, cathartically or does it bother you because you think well i need to deal with that frame there and that structure um well if it's something I can't quite put my finger on I usually use like a broken form because you know the confusion is I guess part of what I'm trying to express um mm. so um I know we're not using this poem but lactose intolerant is one of those when you're in the midst of a, an identity mm. change it's it's a very confusing kind of befuddling time and the form of the poem would would hopefully reflect that um if it's something I'm really trying to harness and pin down like with burnout um I mean it's 
it's a blank verse. It's it's got it's got quite a strict form to it, but it's not a traditional one. Um, it's one that I've invented, even though the syllable counts are quite rigid and routine. Um, again, hopefully the it conveys what I'm trying to say. So the form the form helps me express that the meaning that I'm trying to get across. And um, if it doesn't suit, if the meaning doesn't suit having a form, if it's supposed to be confusing, then I'll deliberately have a confusing structure, a random kind of scattered looking structure, I suppose. Yes. And did you, in terms of going to poetry slams and publishing poetry, um, what, how important is it for you for other people to read your poetry or hear your poems? Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's important to know they read them or hear them. I, I, I think it's, it, it's encouraging that an editor who's a professional who is, you know, must read tons and tons of poetry, then selects yours out of a pile of, you know, a thousand or whatever to, to have in a publication. Um, to me, that's, it's almost like submitting my work to get marked as if I'm a, a student. You know, mm -hmm. if, if somebody, if somebody actually accepts it for publishing and, you know, it's a, a decent press, then I think, okay, right. I've, I've done all right. I've done a good job. Yeah. Um, but whether anyone reads it or not, I don't know. I mean, if it helps anybody sort of process something similar that they're experiencing or, you know, if it elicits a, emotive response and and help somebody sort through uh, an idea that they haven't themselves put their finger on then that's fantastic you know I'd be I'm absolutely thrilled if it has that effect but I don't expect it to um, but when I'm a, when I'm submitting it to a press it, it's more to to see if if another professional kind of sees any merit in it if, you know really to see is it any good would somebody publish this um, I suppose that's my main reason for, for submitting things for publishing. Well, I guess it, it gives you affirmation and um, motivation to, to keep going. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, it's, poets don't really ever get paid unless they're, they're huge names, you know, so it's not, it's not for anything like that. And the presses I submit to are all small presses, so... You know, you're never gonna you're never gonna be rich or famous <laughs> um, <laughs> submitting to those. It's it's just um it's just nice to know that somebody who's used to reading poetry knows it and is a professional um would would take it on would have would have it in their in their publication. Well, also it's nice as a mother to do something that you feel affirmed for because uh, children is, are such a long project that you, you don't get you don't get feedback for sort of 18 years or you know or maybe 15 or so but you put so much into them and you only ever get sort of either negative feedback from you know they don't like what you've cooked or they're cross because they can't <laughs> do something and it's only I always love seeing parents with grown-up children because you feel like it's the finished product it's you know the one you yeah. prepared earlier um, yes, yeah. But it's, it's nice as a mother along the way to do things that are externally affirmed uh, as of value. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's um, so much of what I write is about my children um, and they they can't really understand any of it now. They're too small. But but one day, um, mm. I hope I hope we can bring the two together. 
and uh, they might they might read a few things they recognize about themselves <laughs> and when you go to the spoken word um meetings do, do you enjoy what do you enjoy about that um i really love listening to the to the other poets i, mean, I don't i don't just go to to perform a poem or two it's, it's usually um so so I can see someone I really admire. So one of the first ones I went to, and you always discover somebody incredible at these places as well. Um, one of the first ones I went to was um, a writer. What was it? That's what she said. It's called That's What She Said and it's oh, yes. in the centre of Manchester. And um, a poet, the, the poet that was headlining was Hafsa Anila Bashir. And I, I hadn't heard of her before. And actually, she's one of my favourite poets now. Um, her work is so visceral and so raw and powerful. Um, I was reading one of them um, from her collection in bed on a Sunday, and it's called Drone. And it's literally about a, a bomb dropping on a, a family who were also in bed with their children on a Sunday mm. um, in the Middle East. And I was reading it as I was snuggling up to my own children and I was absolutely pouring my eyes out mm. <laughs> which probably should have come with a trigger warning but she's one of my absolute favorite poets now and I wouldn't have discovered her if I hadn't have um been going to spoken words and uh, watching her perform um she sings parts of her poetry as well she's got an incredible voice and she gives a you know a personal explanation at the beginning so you just get you just get such a sense of empathy for whatever it is they're presenting. And they're from all different walks of life. You know, you might have a, a trans poet who's 18 one day, or you might have a little old lady the next day. But whoever it is, um, you just get such a sense of empathy with their viewpoint just for the few minutes that they're up there. Um, I, it just really helps me understand things from other people's perspectives in a really creative um affirmative way i suppose yes yeah it gives a um yes that's it it gives you a window into their thoughts but also into your own helps you to recognize things in yourself that they're talking about um on that i'd like to just talk about um your poem called niece uh which is i think a really lovely um well poignant summary of lockdown separation and uh, and what's lost uh, during that and you talk about you know your your niece being very small um having puppy fat stretching over elongating bones uh, mm-hmm. and how you've seen her every week but now you say that um that uh, affinity withers in each week's embrace withdrawn and it, it's a sense of um just something dissipating and that you can't keep it up because you, you just can't see each other and you can't replicate it. Is that could you just say a bit about that poem and, and why you wrote it? Um yeah, so I, I wrote niece. I've got two small nieces. Um and uh they were they were babies at the start of lockdown. And um obviously with um social distancing and everything that I really do feel like um we had a very close bond and it, it's broken. It's irretrievably damaged in, in a way. Um, so I tried to show this again in the form. So the first part of the poem is a blank verse and it's 
quite uh, repetitive and structured and then it becomes increasingly random as the sense of grief and, and desperation mounts through the poem um so all of my interactions for you know almost a year so they were they were probably about a year and a half when lockdown started so they're mm-hmm. sort of two going on to three now um and in that time most of our interaction has been socially distanced and outdoors and they've been kind of strapped into their buggies so that they're tied down and they can't reach each other because they would actually just run towards each other and touch each other if they mm. if they weren't if they weren't strapped in. Um, but you know, toddlers and babies, they communicate through physical intimacy. There's no cerebral conversation, or you know, if, if they're on s- screens don't really mean anything to them, you know, only as much as watching a character on CBBS. And that that's really what their closest blood ties were were reduced to you know we were as good as a presenter on CBBS to them because we just saw them through a screen and and when we did see them we couldn't we couldn't touch them and they couldn't touch us and um they just grow so quickly that they're both completely different girls now than they were last year they're not babies they can't be held like babies anymore and yet that's the only memory I have and they probably don't even have that memory because they were so small when it last happened so it's um yeah it's a very it's a very sad poem um and um yeah I I don't see any way to fix that situation that's the worst thing about it yes um and you you've got your phrase amputation grief which is uh sums it up really the the sense of something being chopped off and you don't get it back um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you will get it back, but you won't get those those moments back. And you, then you have to. I mean, it must happen all over the country, and it makes me think, particularly of grandparents, uh, because we're very lucky to be living with our own families. Well, it made me think of two things. First of all, to the appreciation I have that I'm with my children all the time, all the time. But, yes, you know, yeah. that that I'm nothing is lost there. Um, but they, in terms of our relationship, but then. For grandparents, particularly my parents are, you know, relatively old, that, you know, time has passed that that you won't get back. And uh, people change over the years, you know, children change quite quickly in some ways. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so many kind of families split apart by this and it's, it's terribly sad. Um and I, I almost uh, there was there was a, a few weeks in the summer holidays where um, we could safely bubble together because none of our children had been in school, kind of mixing with other households. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, uh, you know, it was kind of euphoric <laughs> to have this magical three weeks back with uh, back with all, all the little cousins together and being able to be a normal family together um and then of course September came and they were all <laughs> they all had to keep their distance again because some of them were back in school but um but yeah it, again very thankful that we did at least have that three weeks in the summer where we had isolated sufficiently that we could safely be together yes yeah well and and then the final poem I wanted to touch on is actually on the grandparent I mean there's others I wanted to talk to you but we don't have time um but the other one is your one about grandparent uh gazelle and gazelle is a is a form of verse is it uh yes it is and my my mother's Persian and um 
my father's Irish, both both uh, countries obviously love their poetry, but mm. um, the Persian kind of famous form of poetry is a ghazal, which is used by Hafez and Rumi and a lot of the others. Um, so because, um, because of that, I, I use the ghazal form as kind of a nod to my children's one Persian grandparent, <laughs> my <laughs> mum. Um, and it, it's it's an appreciation of them, really. Uh, all they do, the uh, my in-laws and my own parents, the endless support, their financial help through all these adult milestones that um, happen, you know, once, once you're coupled up and having children, um, the emotional support, um, you know, sharing every moment of pride which would probably be quite boring to for anybody else to have to share with you but you know they they are brimming with pride in the same way that that we are every time the child does anything like sitting up for the first time or anything mm. like that and um or the advice and the wisdom um so particularly with them um, with something like breastfeeding um because my mother's culture is it's I mean it's the norm um and uh, they all the, her generation they just passed all their babies round. they had a huge support network so my, I remember my mother saying if she wanted to go for a haircut there were four or five friends that would have breastfed us while she needed to nip out wow and um mm. you know that, that they just passed their babies around and they had all this support so um a lot of my friends who didn't have mothers from a culture like that really struggled with breastfeeding because they just didn't have that wisdom and support I mean my mother kind of noticed straight away um that my son had a tongue tie mm. where seven seven professionals missed it healthcare professionals missed it and I was begging them to look in his mouth and uh, she she noticed it and my mother-in-law who's a nurse although she's um, Irish (laughs) but she's a nurse and she said oh in the old days a nurse as soon as a baby was born would just kind of a sharp thumbnail would have sorted that out and the mother would never have known the baby would have been handed back and latched on fine and there wouldn't there would never have been a problem to notice so that all this kind of wisdom is just lost and um I am so thankful for both sets of grandparents that it it wasn't lost on us <laughs> that we we had all this um, help. Um, yeah, and it's I, I guess it's a poem about how it it takes a village. And I've written lots of other poems about generational trauma that's also passed on. But um, I think the last line of this poem is really about how as a metaphor about the ripples that we send out, what we do now for our children is actually what we're doing for our great-grandchildren. It's like ripples from a pebble in the water for future generations. Yes, well, the I mean, every, um, well, stanza, every couplet of your um, pa- uh, poem ends with the word relying. And it's uh, it, it's really interesting, like the, the phrase, um, foundations built by you relying uh, on your sacrifice relying, future worlds on you relying it it made me think how much um I still uh, depend on my mother in some respects I mean definitely when the children were small uh you know my parents were were a great support and they continue helping out financially and you know morally (laughs) and and as you said they're the the other people in the world who care as much about your children as you do partly because they care about you so much and then they care about what happens to you and with your children 
but it's just uh, lovely. And you think about the people whose um, parents aren't with them anymore when they're parents. It, it must just be a, a massive void. And you, you suddenly realise, well, the, the phrase, you know, on your sacrifice relying, um, what your parents have done for you and what you will do unquestionably for your, or un, unquestioningly for your children. And then the fact that your um grandchildren you know we are our grandchildren's grandparents even as we're parents of our children that uh, that's going on and on and on yes that's 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 exactly right um that that's perfectly capturing what I was trying to get across really is that um everything they did for us as small children even if we can't remember it that's exactly what we're doing as parents and hopefully what our children will be able to do as parents in the future if they choose to be. Yes, yes, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it just makes you, again, it's a poem that makes you reflect and appreciate. Uh, and you've got another poem about the grand, grandparent, grandmother coming to visit and the, those moments just before the grandmother turns up. And uh, just, uh, you you capture really beautifully moments in life. And it's like you... you um, shine a spotlight onto an almost an everyday occurrence and uh, and capture it beautifully so it's um, it's very moving to read your poems and I think you write really well oh thank you well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you've enjoyed enjoyed them <laughs> well you're welcome and there's others I would have liked to talk about and you read one at the end um, on uh, primates on dates all about um, equality and inequality and uh, I don't think we've got time to go into it now unfortunately but it's um, yes it's a really good summary of how the roles of uh, men and women and mothers and fathers differ and uh, how mothers um, I mean do you want to just say a little bit about what why you wrote that poem and what your feelings are on it? Um, Well yeah yes I mean I I wrote it because uh, you know uh, I, I um, got together with my husband when we were very young. We were 18 and at university and we're in our 40s now. <laughs> so when we first got together, um, you know, it's it, we, we were all for believing gender as a construct and, and there's no differences between us. And actually that carried on up until we had children. And then all of a sudden it became blindingly obvious that motherhood and fatherhood are unique and distinct from each other even if they are equally as vital um they are very different so they're equal but they're very different roles and um i it really kind of angered me so much that this term parenthood is used in in government policy because it ignores the realities of the physical realities that motherhood is very different to fatherhood for example breastfeeding night feeds they should not be an obstacle for women to juggle and I'm a massive advocate for the 24 month maternity leave because Mm. that would mean um, you know the World Health Organization recommendations and the NHS recommendations to not separate nursing pairs till at least 24 months Mm. um, to continue breastfeeding till at least 24 months if it's um, you know preferable for for both mother and child Um, that shouldn't be tampered with and I, I, I don't think this physical kind of demand um, would not demand this this physical challenge is given enough respect and I think we even see it with things like you know puppy farmers know the outcomes for the puppies and the mothers are not good if you separate them too early 
And um, we seem to have no problem with separating nursing dyads at nine months old. And I, I just think it's barbaric. And from my own uh, experience of it, um, I had two bottle refusers and uh, them having to go long stretches at nursery without me resulted in in one of them being on a drip, being dehydrated because mm-hmm. she wasn't getting enough fluids. And I, I just think to, this is normalised and it's absolutely abhorrent. And mm-hmm. it comes from this false idea of equality that we're all the same and we should be treated the same. And I, I just think the the challenges of motherhood are not the same as the challenges of fatherhood and uh, those those physical biological needs of, of nursing dyads need to be addressed in policy not through parenthood and parental leave mm. but looking particularly at the needs of the child the child needs access to its mother's body for a certain amount of time because we're mammals and so much policy just ignores this and I can see terrible things in the future down the line with problems with attachment and health and all kinds of things if uh, if we don't get on top of it. So it's quite a political poem, actually, that one. Well, I, I probably said too much. No, no, I'm really pleased I asked you about it, actually. And uh, I really like one of the phrases I really liked was your um, school us for spreading interdependence equally. And I think that was uh, that's really true because we are interdependent, you know, that the fathers uh, love the mothers and the children and, you know, and they really, uh, you know, they're absolutely besotted with them usually, but we are interdependent and the mothers need the fathers, the children need the (laughs) the mothers and the fathers. But it is, as you say in this this poem, which I recommend people to read, it's it's. um, it's equal but not equivalent as such you know that we're equally important but we've got such different roles and they're both required yeah and I think there's so much um you know pressure to put on children to be independent to put on all of us to be independent and actually it's false it's you know it's dishonest really to expect that um we're we're all interdependent nobody really exists on their own so so that I hope it came across anyway. <laughs> yes. Well, I also wanted to ask you about the phrase from this: um, "Love is her postnatal angst for child mortality." What were you? What were you thinking of yes, when you wrote I think, that? Um, I guess up until I became a parent, love was a uh, an idea for me that was very cosy and pleasant and warm and snuggly. And um, when I became a parent, I realised it's not. It's an act. It's a kind of a gripping panic that this person can be torn away from your soul exists outside your body now, and any at any point it can just be extinguished, and you would have to carry on existing without it. And it had never, love had never dawned on me in that way before. Um, So it was a a big shock that um, love isn't a a pleasant sensation. It's actually felt more like having a panic attack than Mm -hmm. anything could could damage your child. Um, And that was, you know, I suppose the first time I'd really felt true love um, in, in all its kind of, uh, visceral uh, terror yes um so that was that was the that's what to me that's what that line meant anyway when I wrote it well yes it's the it's fierce isn't it it's a fierce protective love but also fearful that you're suddenly you're so vulnerable that this being who's come into the world has 
every impact on your future now, that they, that they can't be a neutral force in your life anymore, that you are dependent on them being, you know, doing well or, you know, being happy, healthy and so on. And if that goes out of kilter, it will affect you. You can't be unaffected by it. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very kind of a, a cowing experience. I don't think I've ever felt so meek as a, as that period. And um, that 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 is the, an experience of love, I suppose, in its truest form. And um, that was new. And I don't know if my husband, I mean, I don't know, I can't read his mind, but I don't know if uh, a father would experience that in quite the same way. Um, I think it's the physical damage of birth as well that that compounds it. You know, when you when you come round and you're in pain and you're kind of injured as well, um, that probably makes it even more real. Yes, it's it's real and it's surreal. I remember waking up uh, in hospital after a couple of nights. Well, you know, I was awake, but going actually going to sleep and waking up, and my daughter was in a crib next to me rather than on me, which she had been for the last night. And looking across at her and just being absolutely overwhelmed by the sense that this being was here and it, you know, she was sort of existing <laughs> over, over there. And what's more, I, you know, I had managed to get some sleep. It was, it was quite an overwhelming experience. And my last podcast was on joy. And I think when I look at that moment, that was a moment of utter joy. Yeah, that's a, that's a really sweet memory of looking yes. over at her. Uh, well, Sarah, I must uh, let you go. And thank you so much for sharing your poems with us and um, and sharing your insights into them. It's, uh, yeah, it's really, I think, adds um, adds another dimension to life and another sort of thread to the tapestry of life, just to be able to think, uh, step outside it a bit and be forced to put into words uh, the unexpressible <laughs> or the inexpressible yeah. senses that you have. <laughs> Yes. Oh, well, thank you for taking the time to read them all. It means a lot that somebody's appreciated them and it brings back some happy memories, hopefully. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for listening. I I hope you enjoyed that podcast and it has sparked off the inner poet in you as well. Uh, Remember that Sarah reads all of her poems at the end of this podcast. So you can just after this outro, she'll be reading them then. And also I've put them on um, Facebook so you can find a link to them on my Facebook page, uh, which is Mothers Matter Podcast. And that's the same for Instagram. And on Twitter, I'm at Podcast Mothers. You can reach me on Mothers Matter at Outlook.com. I just like to say something about uh, a phrase I keep on hearing when I'm listening to other podcasts. I heard it in a recording with um, uh, Samantha Cameron on Happy Mum, Happy Baby, and also in Postcards from Midlife. This whole thing, whenever women interview a so-called successful businesswoman who is a mother, they always ask if she felt guilty about, you know, working hard while her, you know, looking after her children or or not looking after her children, as the point may be. And it's a, it's a very interesting question. They don't ask, um, do you think that was the best outcome for your children? Or, you know, do you have any regrets about not spending enough time or as much time as you'd like to with your children? The question is always, did you feel guilty? And the question they're hoping, the answer they're hoping for is no, no, I didn't feel guilty. And generally they say that. They say, well, you know, I was the best mother I could be and... Um, 
no, my children love to see me working hard and they're very happy um, for me not to be around because they know I'm pursuing my goals. And I, I just wonder whether that's, I'm just uneasy with it. I wonder if that's the best question to ask mothers. You know that uh, I did a podcast on mothers and guilt, which is podcast number five in the first series with Erica Commissar. And she says that guilt is actually a very healthy um, emotion because if you do feel guilty, it's generally a sign that um, something isn't quite right and it encourages you to address it and to see what you can be done, what can be done to mitigate it. So I think just, you know, saying I'm absolutely fine not having seen my children most of the time they were growing up. I, I'm not sure that's the, the right answer. Maybe the answer would be, no, I have some regrets that I wasn't able to see them, but I felt that my career was very fulfilling and it was worthwhile. You know, something like that. Being able to acknowledge, I think, the the fact that it's a very difficult decision. Also, I noticed they don't ask mothers who are working in uh, sort of less fulfilling jobs, you know, maybe working in, uh, well, it might be fulfilling, but, you know, working in a supermarket or working very hard um, in a menial job or having to work as a cleaner or doing night shifts. Well, first of all, they don't usually interview those sort of mothers, but they don't say, Do you, did you feel guilty about leaving your children? Because the, those mothers haven't got a choice. And a lot of what Mothers at Home Matter campaigns for is for mothers to have a choice. So at the moment, you know, mothers who are doing fulfilling jobs and running their own careers and generally setting up fashion labels and beauty products and so on, they have fulfilling jobs and it doesn't matter to them if they um, could afford to be at home with their children or not because they're very happy in their jobs. But what about all the mothers who do feel guilty because they wish they were with their children? You know, it's not their fault that they're not with them because they have no choice. They have to work. You know, can we just acknowledge that those mothers might feel guilty and also might not have a fulfilling career and structure our society that people do have a choice that if they are in a situation where they're feeling bad because they would just love to be with their children and that's not a not a bad thing. Those mothers are supported financially while their children are young to be able to be at home. So, yes, that's my I, I hope you'll join me in feeling uneasy every single time a successful career woman is asked whether she feels guilty about leaving her children. And she says, no, absolutely not. Everyone is very well off without me being at home looking after my children. So uh, that's my thought on that. So please um, keep listening for the poems from Sarah. Uh, please feel free to contact me with with any comments or suggestions. And um, I'll be back again soon with another podcast. Thank you. Bye. The limbo unknown was another day in paradise's chaos. The rainbow spectrum dazzled with after-school swimming classes, packed snacks, homework sheets, bedtime reads, warmed milk, tuckings in. Rest, the elusive pot of gold, a luxurious frivolity, the undeserved indulgence of the neglectful. The limbo unknown was 72 hours prior to the tarot of blood tests, when the customary clump of hair glued to the plug hole shut at 6pm. Like a dead thing drowned in suds, or how tea leaves forebode. Then, when the 2pm familiar fatigue set in, a pulsing sear to the temples resumed its three-hourly cycling pound of flesh crawling over extremities, an unsettling sprinkle of tingles, of planchette lettering the Ouija. 
The limbo unknown was before psychic vials, syringed by needles, spinning on misfortune's wheel aligned. When the crash of an oven tray burnt a forearm, splattering fish fingers like crime scene gore across kitchen floor tiles. When a dizzy spell omen was dismissed, explained away by another long day, then the results were in. Losing touch, but too old to make old friends again now at yesterday's parties and Glastonbury's. Fashionable footwear pounds 4am streets. Time flew and how. Forgotten tribes well meant. Screenshots sent happy birthday time hops of our sandpit play before we began splitting into grown women and men. Still our solidarities etch imprints central to universe of comrades. Clicking likes, loves deep in plant, informative clay fire forge by all night routines, took for granted. We snapshot, congrats, your third baby's birth, far from our hedonist ordinary, framed in social media memory. Burnout. Impetus. A meteor is down hurtling towards a goal or target. We can't tell which. The atmosphere tears off strips. Friend, lover, health, temper, frazzle, intergalost. The chunks of eye fly in a tail of sky behind. The flaming circles are beautiful trails above until momentum's lost. It is not hurtling. It is a floating speck of ash going nowhere. Inertia. Niece. She slept on my chest every weekend of her life, but love's familiarity evaporates. Puppy fat stretches over elongated bones, while affinity withers in each week's embrace withdrawn. She's so close. Her pudgy hand reaches out through pushchair restraints, her stretch to find mine. Oh, baby girl, I lament, we can't touch. This abstraction is hieroglyphs, white noise. But you, my friend, you, my auntie. And you are my darling angel girl. Our attachment is palpable. We both feel it, and I am so close to stroking her doughy velvet cheek, cupping her delicious double chins in my palms, planting my kisses into her feathery hair, squeezing her cherub form into my chest and stomach, tickling her treasured ribs. Amputation grief. When next I hold her, we will have been cleaved. She will be tall, lithe, will be forgotten. Grandparent Gazelle. First shoes for first steps walking. On you are new roosts relying. Life lessons still for learning. On you turning times relying. Throw money at our wedding. Milestones on you relying. Home feathering on passing. Foundations built by you relying. 
Mimetics are far-reaching, on your sacrifice relying. The chicks their own are rearing, on you are new roosts relying. False independence crippling, future worlds on you relying. Love through still waters rippling, on you, our new roosts relying. Primates on dates. Eighteen years old, they play, they drink, they dance, they read, they're free, believing they're raised the same for such equality. They're a match in clout and time and intellectually. They are accustomed to forgery of equality. They cooperate their funds to build life mutually. They earn and pay and graft together for equality. Twelve years on, two red lines and ultrasonography. Genealogy ends, comradely, equality. Too expended to partake midweek frivolity, she stays while he still free plays outdoors unequally. The precedent set to usurp ideology of identity's hypocrisy unequally. In seven months, the universe swells her bodily, comparably indignities shared unequally. With his great freedom comes great responsibility. She's at his mercy as dependent unequally. She's broken and butchered by episiotomy. He is intact, good health, still his, unequally. He rejoins the world after three weeks paternity. She is upside down, inside out, unequally. Love is her postnatal angst for child mortality. Love is his delicious joy of air lived unequally. Patriarchy's no concern of their sweet progeny. Milk deprives her sleep alone all times unequally. Beyond tolerability, sleep's left memory. She nurses unconditionally, unequally. What of our belief in our selfish autonomy? Babes' need weighs heavily on trifling equality. Only will engaging with rules of biology school us for spreading interdependence unequally. Wisdoms from gynaecology, anthropology, omitted from policy, cuts all unequally.